Welcome. I'm Joshua Gordon from the Sports Conflict Institute in the University of Oregon. I'm gathered today with my good friend, Dr. Ken Pendleton. Ken, how are you today? I'm doing well, Josh. So Ken, these conversations are the highlight of my week. I hope uh, you're ready to have some fun talking about some stuff that maybe isn't so fun for those who are involved in it. Uh, highlight of my week? Well, it's one of them. <laughs> good. So as anyone who's been around anything to do with college sports or sports in general, or maybe just world news right now knows that the NCAA is in a, you know, not so great news cycle again. And this one seems can distinctly different where we've had the FBI do essentially a two year investigation and unveil all kinds of um, improprieties, both from a legal standpoint and from of course an NCAA regulation standpoint involving major companies like Adidas, involving uh, agents, involving some of the big time programs. We've had a media follow already where we've had legendary coach Rick Pitino um, be asked to step aside or go on leave. And it's just starting to cascade now. So I think we're at the very forefront of seeing all of the ripple effect. And this obviously is not the first time that we've had the NCAA, especially around men's basketball or potentially even men's football, trying to figure out you know, how can it um, continue to operate when so much of the dark side keeps coming to the forefront. So what I was hoping we would do today, kind of the conversation, there's been some great conversations in the public about the specific investigation and legal liabilities, all that. I'm gonna ask us to sidestep that a bit and go through a little bit of the history. How did we end up here? Help educate our folks on what the NCAA really is all about. And then let's go into inventive problem solving mode because I, I actually think it, even though it's a dark moment for college sports I'm kind of optimistic and I'm hoping that maybe you are too. I am optimistic because I think this is going to force a conversation out into the open that should have occurred a long time ago but so let's back up. College sports in its modern form really dates back to the late 19th century and at first it was really meant to be something that largely occurred within the university. So take the most you know, sort of dramatic uh, idea behind that. Universities were only supposed to recruit athletes that were already students, already are, you know, admitted for academic reasons as part, to be on their teams, right? They do, the, and the students were actually supposed to make the schedules, coach the teams, et cetera, right? Now, what happened right away is the game became so big that there were all sort of incentivizations to to bring you know to professionalize the operation in, com in in commercial pressures. So, for example, right away you started getting the idea of pay, you know of having coaches who weren't students who actually scheduled the games, ran the practices, made this you know made you know prepared the players, etc. Right at the same time, not surprisingly, teams universities started looking for ways to get kids onto campus who might not have been the most academically qualified to attend otherwise. So, and, and not surprisingly, and they also started compensating these kids that went far beyond, you know, in, in ways that, you know, at the time that were not permissible. They weren't supposed to give them any kind of grant aids or scholarships for any kind of athletic performance. So there was a, a guy at Yale, which was then the reigning football power, still the greatest dynasty in college football history. And there was a kid named James Hogan who played there between 1901 and 1904. First of all, he's from a working class background, so young alum at Yale got him into a prep school so that he might be, you know, academically worthy of entering such a prestigious institution. Second, he got to live in the, the swankiest digs on campus, 
Third, he was given a, a, a weekly, a yearly trip to Havana on a boat. And fourth, he had a concession. He got a, a percentage of all cigar sales on Yale's campus during his time at Yale, known as Hogan's Cigars. <laughs> and so it was pretty, pretty, uh, you know, a, a, you know, above board in a way. But it was, it clearly sort of got to the, pr the pressure between the academic ideal on the one hand and the commercial pressures on the other, right? And so th this basic tension continued to gradually ratchet up. But starting in the late 70s and early 80s, it ratcheted up dramatically because the commercial pressures increased because of the TV money involved, right? So before 1981, for example, ABC only showed one game a week, one game on TV most weeks, and teams were only allowed to appear on TV in college football five times over a two-year period, right? And so they essentially tried to, you know, you know tried to limit how commercialized the sport should be. But actually, universities took the NCAA to court and sued them so that they would have more freedom to sell the rights to games in, in an open market, which is why all of a sudden, first you had two networks start broadcasting games in the early 80s, and then T ESPN and TBS started broadcasting games right then. And by the end of the decade, almost every game or large number of games were, you know, were on TV in college football. Similar trends started to occur in college basketball where there was just prolifer proliferation of content. So now you had these serious economic you know, imperatives, commercial imperatives on the one hand, and the academic ideal was increasingly stressed on the other. And then from a conflict management point of view, I think we, you know, the other problem here is that the group that was maybe the most important for selling the sport, which are the players, were, have largely been excluded from the discussion. And perhaps more importantly to the players, they also didn't get an increased amount of the pie as the pie got bigger and bigger, their slice, the size of their slices more or less remain the same. And if there was a rule I was going to tell you about inst how institutions function, any, any economics professor, as Sports Illustrated, Sports Illustrated's Andy Staples pointed out, would tell you, if there's a lot of money in a system and, and one of the stakeholders who's generating that money isn't being compensated above board, they're going to look for ways to be compensated below board. And that was true when James Hogan went to Yale. It was true when Moses Malone opted to go to the ABA instead of going to Maryland in 1974. And, and if the evidence we saw last week is, is accurate, what was it's, it's now on a scale that we almost couldn't have imagined 40 or 50 years ago. And so do you think, Ken, that we've reached a point now where that idea, the, the constant talk of amateurism, especially for the two revenue-producing sports, whether it's men's basketball or men's football, and Keep in mind, it's not all programs and that are revenue producing within those contexts, but those are the places where we're talking about big money and big commercial pressures. The rest of it probably more closely aligns to the original academic ideals you're talking about. But here's where you know the economic drivers are pulling people out of the attempt to regulate their way out of it. Yes, I, I think that the the at this point, despite the NCAA's best efforts and I and I are you know some really legitimate efforts to address this tension, at this point the failure has reached such a, a point, or the or the tension has reached such a point that it's basically impossible for them to prevent that some you know some of that a huge amount of that money that's being generated from actually undermining the very ideals that they they purport and have genuinely attempted. To promote, and, and I really want to emphasize that. I think that and the, everybody criticizes the NCAA, but they've made a series of decisions to try to address this. So, in, in 1948, they they started they permitted grant aids 
so that player, people had demonstrated financial need could be compensated above Ford. Realizing that this led to all sorts of problems five years later, they allowed for scholarships that were for athletics that were given out regardless of financial need. They, they, and as I mentioned, as I mentioned before, they, they actually tried to curve the commercialization of the sport as late as the early 1980s, right? They tried to prevent, you know, they tried to actually prevent teams from being on TV too often. They also tried to create that level playing field where the amount of money given in a grant aid or a scholarship was the same. And, and so, and finally, as, as recently as a couple of years ago, they started, they, they made a compromise and decided to give these athletes some kind of stipend so they could meet expenses. So they've made some legitimate attempts to do it, to address this. But the problem is that the amount of money going through this system dwarfs the amount of money that has been given to compensate these athletes. So scandal is inevitable unless you find a way to address that core problem. I think it's really interesting, Ken, that I think when we have conversations with folks about this arena of NCAA sports, they often think of the NCAA as, you know, analogous to the NFL and the commissioner's office and all of that. And there are quite a few differences, one being that these are member institutions who are essentially self-governing through an administrative function of the NCAA. So all of the committees that the rules are promulgated by and the enforcement it's really a peer institution program and certainly different stakeholders within that have different voting rights and seats and all that. It's quite complicated. But when you think of the thousands of schools that are members of the NCA, they do most of it really, really well. And so I think what would be fun is instead of trying to think of all the band-aid solutions that may or may not marginally make improvement is if you and I pick apart who are the real key players in this. And I think one of the fun things about, this particular crisis moment is it's brought to light some of the stakeholders who we tend to ignore because the FBI has chosen not to ignore them. So maybe we shouldn't be ignoring them as legitimate stakeholders, even if they're currently conducting illegitimate activities. And so let's think about in particular men's basketball, men's football, what would be um, some of the key stakeholders if we were to bring together a power summit where you and I gather all the key players, um, players not used as only athletes, but all the key folks and stakeholders that are here, who would they be? Who would need to be at the table? And let's imagine some of their key interests and then problem solve a bit about how we might get them a new version of governance or a new version of league or coordination that would come out for basketball and football. Okay. Yeah. And I think right off, we want to emphasize that the, the NCAA has acknowledged some stakeholders rights to be at the table. And then others have been very marginalized, most importantly, the players, but not, they're not the only group that's been marginalized. So let's see, who are the ones that have had a seat at the table? Most importantly, it's the, it's the athletic departments have had a seat at the table and they've looked after the interests of athletic departments. Coaches have more, have, have, have had a seat at the table. The TV networks have had a seat at the table. They they have a great deal of say over 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 how you know how you know over the over what policies are are made informally if not formally. Right now, who doesn't have a seat at the table? We already mentioned the players, but I think the other important group to mention here is the the actual universities, the academic parts of the universities have only had they've had only indirect influence in a lot of ways. The right so the presidents have had a have had to 
sort of strike a bargain between the interests of the athletic department and the academic parts of the university. But often the athletic department is, is and especially at big time football and basketball programs, has had a disproportionate number of sway on ultimately how presidents how presidents behave. But I don't want to oversimplify that because, for example, Miles Brand was hired as NCAA president, I think, in part because pre- university presidents loved the way in which he handled the Bobby Knight situation. So there, it's not to say the academic part of the university hasn't had any voice, but I think I think most people who want to be honest about this subject would say they haven't had as much of a voice as the athletic side of the university has often had in the NCAA. So let's pick these stakeholders apart a bit and try and put ourselves in their shoes and imagine what you need to make a deal for a newly configured, newly constituted organization around these two entities that still meet all the needs of the stakeholders. So we're not trying here to come up with a power play and see who can overwhelm who with their influence, but is there an outcome once we identify their different interests that potentially is creative and at least gets a stage of it? Now we're, we're, we're not gonna spitball all of this today, Ken, but we're gonna at least get, is there a framework that could be interesting to contemplate? Right. Well, okay, let's, let's, I'll throw one out to you. I think the first thing is everybody has an interest at this point in, in actually bringing these in the inevitable compensation that players get above board, that the, 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 the scandals, the hypocrisy is actually not in anyone's best interest, right? It's from a reputational point of view, it's not in the interest of the universities or the athletic departments or the coaches. And in the cases of the coaches and athletic directors, it could have actual, it has, as we're seeing, it could have immediate professional consequences. Right. Obviously, the university, the academic part of the university is appalled by by, you know, by this and rightly and quite rightly so. The players are forced into into, you know, into be in you know, are put in a position where either they turn down money or which which many of them, all, you know, need. I'd, I'd be willing to bet a disproportionate number of the players who accept money are players who have who have what would be very easily demonstrable financial need. And then finally, I'd mention one other group we didn't mention is stakeholder because they're, you know, it's sort of indirect, but, but I go to, you know, I tailgate at, at Oregon Ducks games. I've been a Florida State fan my whole life. From talking to people who go to universities at this point, they're embarrassed by all this. And they would rather have, they see how much money the players generate. They see how commercialized the games are. They would rather have the players make money above board then they would have a scandal like you know like this or the or many are the ones that have occurred ever you know relentlessly over the course of the last several decades embarrass them in their program it's just we want to enjoy a football game and feel good about our university and i think we'd still we'd feel a lot better about it if our players weren't involved in under the table payments and we i don't think many of us would have a problem with the idea of them not being quote amateur as long as it was done in an above board fashion. So we've got this basic shared interest that all the stakeholders here are suffering under the weight of every crisis that happens. And, and the, the current infrastructure, we can blame individuals, we can get rid of individuals, but we know that the infrastructure is incentivizing and rewarding this type of behavior, right? Kickbacks and all kinds of recruiting violations. They may not be the news story every day, but they are probably, an, you know, a norm for at least a number of programs as a way to try and, you know, achieve their interests and achieve their goals. So if you're thinking about, let's start with athletes. What are all the things athletes need 
you know, if they're going to agree, first of all, they need a seat at the table, right? But what do they need to be successful in version 2.0 of the NCAA around these sports? Okay. Well, let's, so let's start with what athletes really want. So we mentioned, I mentioned a good number of the ones in, the, in, in men's college basketball and, and football have demonstrable financial needs. So they would like to have those addressed. Um, they also they, they also don't want to feel exploited. And, and so if you watch, for example, the Fab Five documentary on ESPN's 30 for 30 or the U, they point out the play, you know, they miss how the players see all this money being raised from, for example, the sale of jerseys. And yet they can't even go buy one. Of, they're not allowed to be given one of their own jerseys. Right. Just take a really obvious example. Third. And this is really important. Players who go to big five schools in, in, in men's college football or, or the, 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 you know, the top 65, 75 schools in college basketball off the top of my head, a lot of them have professional dreams and they want those facilitated. Right? So, so those I would identify and, they, and, and I think at least a significant percentage of them also would like to achieve something academically. And a really important distinction underlying what you were saying is this difference between being paid, being compensated, and being able to potentially use your own likeness for profit or for benefit. Right. So that there's one version, obviously, where an outcome could be that there's an increased salary. We've seen some of that increased benefits as an attempt to try and remedy some of the inequity that's been happening the last few years. But there's still a significant constraint on someone using their likeness. And the analogy I will often use when discussing this is imagine a star musician is at a university and they might be there on a music scholarship to perform and to learn while they're there, but nothing in anything that they're dealing with would prevent them from putting out an album, going on tour, earning from their talent or their likeness, being a YouTube star. Any of these things, if they wanted to do them, they could. And it's so distinctly different for our student athletes that they are not allowed to use their likeness without becoming a national headline. And that's something where the potential profitability of the likeness of an athlete has, without a doubt, been taken exclusively for use by the institutions themselves and the commercial entities that play. So, so let's think for a second about why institutions would resist this. And I, I think the biggest reason is that some there's a, a vast difference between the resources schools like the University of Texas or, the, or Ohio State or the University of Florida have on the one hand and schools like, say, oh, Tulane or Missouri. Not that they're a small school. They're in the SEC, but they, I'm sure their resources are far less than Alabama's have on the other. Right. And so in this case, if you allow the universities, if they were allowed to actually compensate athletes directly, you would even be a less competitive playing field than it is now. And in, in fact, universities do have some latitude in how much the stipend is. There's a cap on it. But if you look at the numbers, schools like Ohio State and Florida State give, are giving much bigger stipends than, say, Northern Illinois is giving or Boise State is giving. Right. So so there's a real in this case that would actually undermine the level, the level playing field that the NCAA is trying to achieve. And I'm not sure it would be good for college athletics in total. If all of a sudden the University of Texas could offer, a, you know, a recruit, you know, the more, you know, more compensation and say than Tulane could offer that recruit. Right. And so with athletes, we, we've absolutely identified, you know, a number of things that have gone on. There are other stakeholders you and I have contemplated before. Agents, for example, 
they have a longer term interest in in having a relationship with the athletes who are going to go on and be pro in their sport. So trying to figure out, is there a better way to engage them? Um, certainly you mentioned students and alumni of the universities and their desire to both feel good about their institution, but then also to not lose their traditions and their that, that connected community that sport brings to the university setting. We have athletic directors, obviously, who have competitive pressures and monetary pressures. We have the commercial interests, whether it's TV and some of the advertising and sponsoring bodies that go on, um, wanting to be able to activate on the popularity of these sports, for sure. Um, and you, at the university level, you also have um, this broader branding interest that goes on. And we, you know, often when you see faculty criticize the amount of money that goes into investment for college athletics, one way I sometimes will encourage people to think about it is don't think about that money uh, in the way you would think about investing in an academic program or anything else. Think about it as how much would it cost you to buy that airtime to get people aware that your institution exists and to take interest in your institution. And when you look at it from that standpoint, it's been one of the most economical investments for airtime and awareness and brand building. Now, of course, as you mentioned earlier, if the brand building is about scandal and these kind of things, you're eroding the very value in which you've been investing in all this time. So these are some of the interests. So if we we think about things that you and I have both identified from an interest standpoint, let's get creative. Let's spend, you know, just a few minutes as we wrap up here to think about some of the ideas that you have floating around your head and, and I'll share some as well. Okay. I, I, I want to identify one other group more specifically, which are coaches. And I, cause I think one of the, the areas that they're, they're one of the things that coaches really embrace is managerial control. And so they like the idea of, of having defined, you know, under, you know, sort of having a clear understanding of what, you know, uh, what the athletes, what, what kind of compensation they get, how they're getting it, et cetera. And they want to also feel like they're the, the fundamental driver of their, prof- of their college development as an athlete, and they have a significant say in what they do academically. So considering that, here's, here's, some, here's some of the things I'd propose. First of all, I would allow athletes to be represented and compensated by agents at the time at which they enter college. Now, again, this, I could see initially coaches might say, I don't like the idea of having to work with an agent. But I would say two things to coaches. First of all, every athlete just about has someone who's, a, who's having a significant sway on their decision-making process anyway. At least now you would know who it is. You would require the agents to register. So the other, the other big thing is you could actually work with that agent to make more intelligent decisions for the athlete's future. So, for example, right now where the agents are lurking behind the scenes, they have, a, they have a vested interest in athletes coming out of school earlier, even if they're not optimally prepared. But if they were actually represented above board, then you could go to that agent who's going to probably have other sources and say, look, right now X isn't ready to go to the NFL or the NBA yet. And it's really in your best interest to encourage that person to stay in school. And, oh, by the way, you can actually – that person's going to be better able to stay in school because they're going to, they, they might receive, you know, a, a more robust income or have more, have more resources while they're in school. Right. So I think it would, again, it would, and it would also, from the NCAA's point of view, it would, it would actually minimize the scandal because now it would be done above board. And by the way, agents would all do it above board because the, you could actually work with the NFLPA and other bodies to basically prohibit them from practicing if they were to 
contract with athletes without registering it or being registered. Yeah, it's, it's hard not to imagine, for example, the analogy would be if you had a star computer programmer at a university, they might have a headhunter recruiting them. And good, if they're that talented and they're that marketable for Google or Facebook or whoever, then why wouldn't you want them setting the stages for their next step in their career while they're in school or whenever, really? Yes, and, and, and again, I, I ask myself, would fans be bothered by that? And I, maybe it's just my, you know, my own experiences, but I've had a fair amount following Florida State for 37 years and never missing a game. I think we wouldn't have any problem with this at all. If, if we would have no problem. And besides, it's, it, the line is pretty thin. For example, when Deion Sanders, God bless him, was at Florida State between 1985 and 88, he was making a lot of money playing baseball. So he was living a life that was much larger, both by his personality and his wallet, than other athletes at FSU. I can tell you, and he made that great interception against Miami in 86 or Michigan State in 88 or to close out the Sugar Bowl in, 19, in January 1st of 89, it didn't bother me a bit that he was making a lot of money playing baseball. So I don't think that affects how we actually relate to that experience. So I don't think it would be a, you know, that, you know it would be, I can't see a single group, if they really thought it through long term, that wouldn't be better off by allowing this to occur. So I, I want to go even more radical than you're going, Ken. I like everything you're throwing out there. Um, I wonder, at least out loud, if there's a version of all this where the revenue-producing sports aren't really under the direct umbrella of the universities, that perhaps you know football and basketball, where they are revenue producers, should still be affiliated with the university, still be played so we have the events and all that, but maybe they're, they are professional athletes who are licensed under the brand umbrella of you know the university of oregon or whoever and you play under those brands you use the marks you have the mascots you have all the great traditions but we don't create an illusion that they're there primarily for school and the demands at this point with the professionalization of how they approach these college sports is so substantial that it's it is the exceptional individual that can devote the amount of time necessary to get the most out of their education and to perform at that level of their sport, it's generally a trade-off one or the other. And why not let them earn credits, you know, in terms of years of that they can come back almost like a military model where you earn service time for the university related to that affiliation and then come back and either get your degree then if you want to balance them both at the same time or come back later um, because most professional athletes, even those who make it, aren't going to have more than a couple of years of a career. It's just a intermediate part of their career. The career is going to be something else ultimately. But there is some time sensitivity to, to an athlete of doing some of that part of their career while they're young. Right. And then setting the stages for everything else. And if, if it's supported and part of what they do, you, I think would add a lot to the campus culture to have someone who did do a year or two in the NFL and then back on campus and fully immersed in their studies and not trying to be um, in that insular vacuum. And that might be the college football experience as it stands now. Right. I, I totally agree with this idea. Um, I think there's two things going on. We mentioned the entrance to college athletes. There's, they do want an education, but to be quite honest, the, the ones who go to the big time, the big five schools or, or the bigger, bigger college basketball powers, they're living the dream. They have, they're hoping, they're working their butts off to try to get into the NBA or the NFL. 
And so that means two things. One is they have the demands are absolutely extraordinary, despite the fact that technically they're not supposed to practice more than 20 hours a week. Right. The, during the season, the, the other part though, is that their priorities that that's, that makes their priorities different. Right. I mean, think if, if we were reflective about what we were like, or 19, 18 to 22 years old, it's very difficult to juggle balls. Just being, if you only, if like in my case, just having academic needs and in balancing with my personal life, imagine trying to do that when you, and you're having to ha be in a highly competitive, highly demanding, very physical, sometimes injurious sport. Oh, and then add one other thing. Many of these kids come from backgrounds where they lack the cultural capital to to have the right kind of study habits and discipline and know how to how to work within you know with the within the university system they don't come from middle class backgrounds right so you throw all these together you're you're actually shortchanging these kids who often are getting a really great academic opportunity and so the best solution here would be to tell these kids focus primarily if not entirely on athletics now and for every year you're at that university we will give you one year back after to if, if, if to study whatever you want academically. So if you stayed at a University of Oregon for four years and it turns out you didn't quite make the grade as a professional football player, or you did for a little while, or you you, know, you could or you ended up having a stellar career, the point is you could then come back to the University of Oregon and you would in, and now pursue what you would now realize are very valuable academic opportunities. And by the way, Students in the university would love to have ex-athletes at that level actually in their classes and being part of the student community. So don't have them live in the athletic dorm or in some unique cloistered place. Have them live among the student population, and then they would benefit from the cultural capital they would, they would acquire by being around people who are from middle-class professional backgrounds. And so this would be win-win for everybody. The NCAA would just have to get over the, this perception. What they don't like is the perception that you're just at school to play sports. So they've tried to say, okay, you've got to have this academic workload. You've got to do this with sports. If you really cared about the kids, and but in the long run, your own reputation, you would allow them to go ahead and get there at, you know, pursue their educational opportunities when those really became a priority for them. It would do a lot of good for everybody. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're trying to achieve here isn't all that complicated. We're trying to create a platform where those who want to get an education have access. We're trying to create a platform where these sports can succeed both as a commercial entity and as, an, as part of a learning experience for any individual. And we're, we're trying to create a, a bit of, you know, a better fit for why these would be part of a university umbrella at all. And so if we acknowledge that a lot of times it's about brand development, brand building, these kind of things, then let, let's differentiate between those sports where it's directly, you know, synchronously lined up for part of that educational experience and where the demands are so great because the commercial entity is first and foremost that maybe it's a different type of organization. And I, I really like the idea of, uh, you know, the ideas we're talking about, about getting some of these stakeholders that have not been at the table at the table and changing the fundamental model without breaking the things that are working. And that's really what we're talking about. You still, you still have the tournaments, you still have the bowls, you still have all of the excitement that goes on, you have the traditions, but we, we cleanse and put light on all the stuff that's been ruining it in, in terms of the shadiness. And I, I do think fundamentally, Ken, and then I'll ask for your final thoughts, but from my perspective, the fundamental flaw we've had here is that the negotiations that have taken place are of a subset of the people who matter. 
and until we get everyone at the table and have a, an honest, fundamental, critical, constructive negotiation, then we're always going to get an outcome that leaves a couple of folks unrepresented and looking for ways to, to make, be made whole. Yeah, I, com- I, I agree. I think that the, in, with the current system, because of the tension between the ideals and the commercial interests, corruption and scandal are inevitable. They're, you know, it, it's true. It's empirically true. It's, it makes complete sense when you think about the amount of money that's awash in the system. It's doing tremendous reputational and sometimes material damage. And so, if you so, in order to address the interest, you know, the, the the interests of all the stakeholders that we've outlined here, completely changing this mindset and going to, to allowing a kind of quasi marketplace to function would be in the best interest. And oh, by the way, since it would be the agents who would actually be, you know, paying the athletes, and we might even allow them to pursue some endorsement opportunities within certain constraints while they're there, the university might be able to, in those cases, waive the stipend costs for that. Right. So there, it, there, it would not be, and this is really important. This should not add any cost to the university, right? It would actually be a net cost saver for them. And so that benefits the non-revenue sports and and possibly, but this is another discussion. It could actually benefit the general fund of the university. Um, So I I really feel like this is something I I understand the NCAA is reluctant to, and I understand why they've embraced amateurism for all this time. And I really believe they've made genuine efforts in, in many instances to promote that. But I think that with this scandal highlights, which involves the FBI, which involves major corporation, which is apparently going to involve numerous university shows, is that you have to, if you don't find a way to include the stakeholders and actually give them, materially compensate them, you're actually going to seem fundamentally hypocritical. And that can't be in anyone's best interest. Ken, great way to wrap up. Let's hope indeed that this crisis is the catalyst for doing something different. And that we don't come on the show a year from now and say, hey, something's finally happened that's going to change it. I, I'm optimistic. I think this is different. I think you are as well. And I really appreciate the conversation. Oh, I hope you're right. Thank you.